Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Jan, writers are duplicitous creatures. Mm -hmm. They have the power to lead us astray. James Christina, in his novel Antidote to a Curse, seems to tease the reader by exploring threads of interconnected narratives. So, James, welcome to 3CR. Good morning, David. Now, let's start very simply, because this is a, a sort of very complex sort of novel. The protagonist in this case is Silvio Portelli, an author, and that fact is significant as is his current medical status. So what can you tell us about Silvio? Um, Silvio is in a state of flux. He is in a time frame, operating within a time frame. Remember, this is set in the 1990s. So any um, questionable HIV status from point of um, risk to diagnosis would take a 12-week period. And that's the actual time frame of the primary narrative. So you say primary narrative, and the fact that Silvio is an author is quite significant. He forms a relationship with Zlatko Omerovic. Now, this opens up a whole other background to us, because we've got the Bosnian Herzegovian <laughs> conflict there. Yes, so yes. So that's a rather intriguing backdrop that you've created there. Now, a lot of the details that filter through from the encounters between Silvio and Zlatko form, if you like, um, key points in the secondary narrative, which is predominantly dreamlike in nature. So we've got the primary narrative, we've got a, a secondary narrative with a particular historical background. I think we should also add that uh, it's set in Melbourne. Yes. And they're both sort of uh, almost transported to yes. Melbourne. Yes. Silvio's come down, Zlatko's fleeing from the Bosnia crisis. But let's add another dimension to this, and that is that Zlatko has previously been in a relationship with Yasna... Correct. A poet. Correct. So this adds further complication yes. to the, to the storyline. A further dynamic? A further dynamic, because as we say, Yasna's a poet. Yes. Um, and then to round things out a bit, Sil um, Silvio is living in shared accommodation with Nancy and Henry, and, and Nancy's building this gazebo aviary out the back. Correct. I think you've established the narrative very, very beautifully. <laughs> well, it's... It's intriguing because one has to sort of get a grip on all of these threads. Yes. Because they interweave. They interweave, they interconnect, and there is a correspondence between these threads. Okay. So let's get to the narrative now. The fact that we have writers and poets, and for that matter, Zlatko, rents out DVDs, which is also significant. It means we're exposed to a range of styles. Uh, we have dreams, interpretations, renderings. And if I can read, for example, the dreams were interpretations of Zlatko's stories and had been influenced in part by a set of movies I inherited before leaving Sydney. 
I acquired a stash of old Super 8 movies with no sound, no apparent sequence, grainy. Michael's cameras in downtown Melbourne transferred them onto a set of DVDs that I could view on my laptop. Zlatko's stories had also been influenced by a death in the family. Watching one of the films, I realised the distance was beyond trans traversing and this film like the dreams provided limited access nancy lit up her lamp i struck the pause button from my bedroom window i had an uninterrupted view of the gazebo the garden was suffused with the soft light armed with a couple of magazines she had taken her place in her rocking chair that night i dreamed about yasna and zlatko in the town of velika kladuza fikret's town the dream unreeled like an old super eight in full color Mm. Now that sort of encapsulates the range of perspectives that right. are possible yes. in this narrative. Yes. What are you what are you doing with all of these narratives? I think that's a very interesting passage to highlight because what we've got, as I mentioned earlier in our interview, we have a set time frame, but we also have a set number of characters who have come together and they are if you like, bringing together their different experiences. And Silvio is trying to bring these different disparate experiences and observations into a holistic narrative. In many ways, it reflects real life in that we mm. are a, a, an accumulation of a range of narratives. We, are, we have our dreams... Uh, I've got to think about published or not once a week. I've got to, uh, I've got interconnected with other people who have their own histories. So it's realistic in that sense. But what we expect from a narrative is often something that's more linear in that, without the divergences in that. Yes, ways. yes. I think there's also possibly an implied comment that we are also the accumulation of other people's experiences and stories. Indeed. And then you've got the other dimension, which is the poetry, slumped diagonally, diagonally across from one another. We had staked out the parameters of our seating arrangement. This cafe could be any cafe with a million different darkos to serve us. Zlatko's story continued. She had these weird ideas about prose, he offered, tapping the end of his unlit cigarette against the tabletop. What do you mean? She thought prose was second rate. He divulged, lighting his cigarette. Why? I asked, expecting some elaborate defence. She said it was limiting, too literal. I relinquished a dismissive pout and considered ordering a drink. Too literal, I thought to myself. She was interested in the impulse behind the story. Is that what you're going for here, the impulse behind the story? I think that feeds into it to a certain degree. I mean, what we're dealing with here, given the limited time frame, is certainly not a complete story. Not a complete story. Well, but the 12 weeks between the uh, blood tests yes. is, in fact, a complete story because he's got a relationship. Silvio's got the relationship in that time. So that is a story. By but the end, I would like to think so. But I suppose in these encounters, Silvio is picking up, if you like, details that he transports into his notebook, accumulate. In, he accumulates them. But that begs the question of what uh, Silvio is getting out of his relationship with Zlatko. Is it merely the means of acquiring uh, information for what he wants to write? 
There's an interesting exchange going on there, yes, yes. Is that the nature of relationships then? Sort of... Well, one could ask that question. <laughs> I don't know if I'll provide the answer. Well, we, we can. I mean, the nature then also of the homosexual meeting place, yes. which is where uh, people can, in fact, spy on each other. Interesting. And even there we see an infiltration of um, Zlatko's story you know, coming through there. So, I mean, it sort of surprises perhaps the reader because it's not as it initially seems. So, but then are our lives merely uh, eavesdropping or spying on other people's lives because we can never know the complete story? Yes. Um, are we voyeurs in other people's lives? Interesting. <laughs> and I, I think that the way we accumulate details is varied. And then... We see the tenuous nature of other things, like the gazebo Avery, which Nancy is having built in her backyard, mm. and there's an outcome there which is unexpected. Yes, yes, very much so. I, I don't know if we can tell... That might spoil the story spoil it, a little spoil bit. Spoil it a bit, yeah. but that we have something that's being constructed... Correct. Uh, ..with the hope of, uh, and well, uh, an outcome... Um, a renewal or, or um, something to look forward to, but then something uh, unexpected unexpected happens. intervenes. But this is also present in the notion of Silvio's HIV status. Yes. Um, you could seroconvert anywhere between 5 to 11 weeks. Would you care to explain seroconvert to us, please? That's um, when... A person will change from being notably um, HIV negative to being HIV positive, and that would be detectable in a blood test. So in the course of this 12 weeks, Silvio doesn't actually know his status, doesn't know who he is. Am I going too far there? No, 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 I think that's very fair. He's definitely, if you like, in this unknown um, period. How many of us are leading our lives in that sort of state are you making a comment about that well perhaps it could definitely be a metaphor for many of us and also what are you saying about the notion of authorship uh, and what writers actually do which gets back to that initial point of um, writers um, being sort of duplicitous duplicitous and subversive creatures yes interesting i am a product of the writing workshop class if you like i i've had a lot of experiences um constructing narratives with um input from other people so i think that in some ways we see that influence in the narrative here well i'm just wondering and i mean we were talking off air before about influences mm. but this is more like what i'd encounter with theater mm. where you can uh, start with a realistic style and all of a sudden it breaks and there's a change of lighting and you get a whole other scenario. I haven't seen it that much in writing, though, right, where, yes. where you're changing. What were you setting out to try and do in that regard? I wanted a very dynamic narrative and one that was um, one where you do see a lot of shifts, if you like. And so because I had the two main strands playing there, I wanted this interconnectedness between the two. So I didn't want to sit with any one particular strand. I wanted them dovetailed. What effect is that having on the reader, do you think? I'm hoping that it keeps the reader immersed 
and active? Well, th- there are um, sort of links between the threads that are going through this. In fact, something just came to mind. Uh, Walter Mitty's the, uh, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty by James Thurber. Right. And he goes into a dreams where he imagines himself a hero, but it's a sound or something that's happened in the uh, realistic narrative that links it to his dreamscape. So that... That's actually the only thing I've come across. But you you have images, like there are finches at one stage yes. in, in the dream that appear somewhere else. But also you can have something that appears in a dream for the first time that then appears in... In real life. Real life. So it's sort of working back Backwards. the other way. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's most unusual in that regard. Right. I'd like to think that that creates an element of surprise, yeah? Yeah. But it would also mean the reader, perhaps, is going to have to revisit the book to f- pick up the connections. Right, yes. Was that your intention? Um, well, I suppose because there is this um, cross-referencing in terms of imagery, metaphor, symbol, it would be a hard task to pick this all up on, on, on one, one reading. reading. Yes, And therefore, as you say, imagery and symbol, is it more like poetry then? I definitely have been influenced, especially earlier on in my writing career, with um, poetry, yes. And I think there's a strong influence there. So it makes it a rather interesting novel to read. Uh, it is uh, called Antidote to a Curse. The author is James Christina, and it's a Transit Lounge publication. So, James, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for your comments. Most interesting. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to talk about Melbourne. Now, Melbourne, sometimes it's, it's, we hear about it being the most livable city. But back in 1876, it also had another claim to fame. The title of Jill Geese's, I'm sorry, Jill, um, book may surprise you. And welcome, Jill. Thank you very much for having me. What is the title of your book? The Maddest Place on Earth. The Maddest Place on Earth, Melbourne. Hmm. What connects you to the mentally ill? Okay, so I'm a clinical psychologist by training and have had a a long career in mental health. Um, And what intrigued me about this topic was that I didn't know anything really of the history of Victoria's mental health system. I think anybody who's driven down the Eastern Freeway away from the city and passing Kew on the right, they've seen that palatial tower of Kew Asylum. So we might not know anything more about mental health than that, but it (laughs) certainly is of interest. So, you know, why was it built so grandly? Well, it was actually built to provide a lovely place for patients to be in with uplifting views of the of the surrounding countryside, which is why it was built on a hill, landscape gardens. It was all part of an enlightened treatment that that was came in in the um, in Melbourne, um, and it was aimed. They earnestly aimed to cure insanity with their enlightened treatment. I'm going to get you to read from page 15. This is from Jill's book, The Maddest Place on Earth. This is about what. Uh, well, how mentally ill were treated prior to this establishment. Okay, so just to, to clarify, this is the, the lunacy reforms that came in that in, enabled these enlightened treatments came from England because we were a colony of England and they had their unlikely beginnings with a, with a tea and coffee merchant whose name was William Tuke 
who was also a Quaker. Tuke spurned the orthodox medical treatments of the day, which understood all illness as the result of an excess of one of four bodily fluids or humours, blood, phlegm, black bile and yellow bile. For insanity, medical treatment aimed to restore mental health by expelling the surplus humours through a variety of brutal measures, including debilitating bleeding of patients, use of harsh purgatives and emetics, and the painful blistering of skin. Immobilisation with chains, irons and manacles, as well as isolation, were also part of the routine management of insanity. So William Tuke brought about this whole uh, new field that dignity, routine and good food should be given to the mentally ill. And this is in a beautiful place like uh, Willsmere. So where were the mentally impaired housed prior to Okay, so Tuke, we were talking about the old asylums of England in in the um, 18th century. So Melbourne's first asylum was built in 1848, and it was never as bad, obviously, as those uh, early asylums in the the dark centuries before William Tuke came along. Um, So Yarrabend Asylum was built on the Yarrabend parklands in the inner north of Melbourne. There's one remaining pillar that, Mm. that stands there that's that's fascinating when you walk past and to think that that was, um, that was the gate pillar of the old asylum. That's all that remains. Look, I, I just thought it was incredible. 1876, a 1,000 people were in Yarra Bend and also there were a 1,000 in Kew. That's right. Why so many? And there were also two country asylums that yeah, were filled beyond capacity. Well, therein is the, is the title for my book because this, uh, Victoria, the colony of Victoria in colonial days, was officially declared to have the highest rate of insanity in the world. So why do we have so many? <laughs> well, this is multiply determined. I mean, there, were, there was a royal commission about this and uh, some the medical experts of Melbourne were, were grilled for their learned explanations mm. to explain this excess of insanity and they came up with all sorts of weird and wonderful ideas that are tragically amusing now. But they earnestly believed that if the brain got excited, it caused irritation and brought on insanity. So this could have could occur through the religious fervour of Salvation Ma- Army meetings, through Victoria's high meat diet, the intense Australian sun on those fair British souls, or excessive the, masturbation. Even. Yes, I like that one. <laughs> or the speed at which we live. That's right, in the modern contemporary city of Melbourne. Or perhaps it was because it took two medical officers to certify someone and they only got paid if they certified them as insane. Well, there was a perverse incentive, mm. but it was mostly, and they could also be bribed too, which happened a little, um, but it was mostly because it, it just required the signatures of two local medical doctors. And I love the and, other fact that um, quite often the mental institutions were full of infirm or paralysed patients that, that the hospitals didn't want to have as deaths, deaths on the hospital, so they moved them out to the asylum. That's right. And the asylum laws about what defined a lunatic were, were changed when Melbourne became very prosperous in the 1860s with all the gold, and they broadened the definition of lunacy so that it was anyone 
of unsound mind who who could not manage their affairs. So there were children with intellectual disability locked yeah. up with adults, and even people who used uh, alcohol excessively and wasted their means. So you can imagine the colony was awash with with alcohol. With alcohol. Yeah, so anyone and with... so the the asylums were awash with so called lunatics. <laughs> so this book, the maddest place on earth. You know, there's a lot of discussion in it about the treatment of patients and how the different superintendents ha- handled their workload and Dr. Embling and Dr. Bauer. Bowie, and especially the ambitious Dr. Edward Pally. It's all there. But what makes this book so interesting is that you've brought in certain people, and one of them is the Vagabond. That's right. This guy really got me going when I found him. He was an extraordinary undercover journalist who got a job at the asylum and decided that he would... um, talk about the conditions, observe the conditions of all the lunatics in the asylum and then wrote them up in Melbourne's Argus newspaper and caused an absolute sensation. He was a, he was a champion of the underdog and, and um, he was drawn to the cauldron of all those people in the asylum to expose their plight. And, and his account is, um, still survives and when I found that, it just brought the, the world of the asylums of of all those years ago, just roaring back to life. And uh, he's got a very um, humorous style but a very a very compassionate voice too and uh, there's an immediacy about his writing. So I've included excerpts of, of, of his writing as well. And, of course, everybody wanted to know who was That's it? Right. Who was it? <laughs> and... Um, and therein lies quite a story, which is oh, also in the book. But we're not going to say who <laughs> no, no. he was or why. But when he decided to publish his last writing, he decided to put a portrait of himself in That's the right. book and announce who he was. Who did the portrait? Well, the, the portrait was actually done by one of the patients in the asylum who was um, allowed he was the, he was the son of a famous artistic family in England who'd been sent out here like a, a number of others. That was another reason we had so many lunatics, so-called. This, this, was a, this had a term, imported insanity. That's right. That's so right. That's, just explain was, that one again. So this was a, a term that was coined in the colony because uh, people in England, families who didn't want the shame and burden of their insane relatives, put them on a boat and um, gave them 50 pounds and left them to fend for themselves. Now, this caused quite an enormous problem once they got to Mm. Melbourne, and I love the way it was dealt with. The problem (laughs) of undesirable and costly boat people. (laughs) Uh, So it came back to the ship captains who were charged with their financial responsibility. So how, you know, the ship captain, you know, sort of getting a passenger (laughs) on board. You can can only imagine what sort of screening they did. So if anyone was found to be a lunatic when they arrived in the colony... The, the ship's captains were, were responsible. The, law, the government had to change the law because this practice was so common. So and this is that's another reason the asylums were bulging. So poor old George, just to get back to him, he was one of these patients. And, and lo and behold, um, you know, the stress of, in a vulnerable personality was too much and he ended up in the asylum. And, and he was given the opportunity to paint portraits all day long as part of this enlightened treatment. And he painted them of all the different people in the asylum. And the vagabond, who was then working undercover at the asylum, sat down to have his portrait done by George Foley. And uh, he, he obviously really was touched by this man mm-hmm. and he, he treasured that portrait and kept it with him. And then when he could no longer um, keep his identity 
hidden because there was this sensation. There was 15,000 books that were sold in the colonies mm. of an author's dream mm. um, just on his, on his underground, under, undercover um, observations. And so he decided to use this portrait that George Foley had painted in the asylum to reveal his identity, and uh, then he was known. So the book also takes us through the the, the life of George Foley, and he's in and out of um, uh, the Kuwasanam and also Yarra Bend. Uh, for interesting, you know, sort of art. It's always about art, mm. but one of the problems is, of course, when he's cured and allowed out of the asylum, he's given no backup. You know, no, and that's he's right. by himself and he's, right. he's basically destitute. It's it's amazing. They they all had to wear asylum clothes, so they they got given a, a sort of a worn suit that someone had donated to the asylum and they yes. got their belongings back that they'd gone in with and, and they were sent on their on their way. So Yes. So we're not. You'll have to read the book to find out just what happened to him. That's right. But <laughs> every Friday there was the dreaded weekly bathing. Uh, this is you know they, they all got clean clothes, but the water wasn't so clean no. really. Well, with that many patients and it was cold water, they all they had to have multiple people use and, the bath water, yes. and they also ran out of towels, so they had to use dirty sheets for that. So the oh. vagabond gives us all of these rich rich details that uh, you wouldn't otherwise have. And there was the surprise when Edward de Lacey Evans went for a... a yes, so this was a, actually a transgender patient who was, who'd lived on the goldfields for 20 years as, as a man and he got admitted to Kew Asylum because of stress and a number of other things and uh, had to have a compulsory bath on admission and he refused, kicked up a huge stink, and then they just brutally stripped him naked and before them was the body of a woman. So he was yes. rushed to the female side of the asylum, dressed in petticoats and, and, the, and the smocks that they had, and then uh, sent away because such was officialdom that he, he'd been written in the, in the paperwork as a man and, and this was a woman. But, I mean, that's a very, very tragic story because he... Um, yeah, oh, don't tell. No, okay. No, we'll, leave, we'll leave everybody to, to work that one out. Okay. Um, look, there was just another patient, the father of Henry Handel Richardson, mm. with something called GPI, a paralysis, which... Yes, um, general paralysis of the insane. At the, that occurred usually in middle-class men during their midlife mm. Mm. And they, uh, and, they, there were strenuous efforts to not link that with with syphilis for many, many years because it was it was a disease of middle class men. Yes, um, uh. and uh, yes, but that that was that was how you got general paralysis of the insane. So, ah, oh, look, the, the entertainments, <laughs> the balls that they had with really bad music, <laughs> um, you know, and of course, sort of anything like this, there was always cuts in revenue and things, yeah. and and how Doctor uh, Pally decided, well, I know what we can do, we can put up our own brewery. That's right. <laughs> well, that was to that was to brew the medical comforts. I mean, one of the one of the treatments that they gave them was was liberal alcohol. <laughs> At 11 o'clock in the morning. So he had so many patients that it was costing a lot of money. So he decided he'd, he'd set up his own brewery. And they even won first prize for the <laughs> ale. So, <laughs> And they brewed it with 3,000 dozen bottles of beer in 1876. Yes, that's right. Incredible, incredible. <laughs> well, this book, it 
it, it's phenomenal. And I just laugh about what's happening now in uh, at Q Cottages. It was a gated community, closed in, and it, it still is. Mm. Well, Q Cottages was a different thing, but Q Asylum, um, definitely, you you got locked in oh. with the walls, and and it is now. It's a it's a it's a housing, a residential housing estate that is actually a gated community. So. Oh, um, the book, an absolute interesting read. Thank you so much. And I love the way you focused it around the characters and gave it so much history and truth there. So I've been talking with Jill Geese about her book, The Maddest Place on Earth, an Australian scholarly publication. And I was talking with James Christina about Antidote to a Curse, which was from Transit Lounge. Thanks, Jan.